podcast on drugs addiction and dumb shit my name is dave i'm still sick and this is a bonus tribute episode to the great wayne kramer who died yesterday we had him on the show a few years ago he was uh somebody that i always really admired he wrote a really really incredible book it was called the hard stuff i loved it was a memoir it was amazing I had the opportunity to interview Wayne Kramer back in the day when I was still getting high on heroin. And I, I never listened to the MC five. I just loved the logo and I loved the idea of it. They were, uh, kind of the prototype of what punk was going to be. And I'm going to read the eulogy from the Detroit news. Wayne was a hardcore Detroit guy And he came up in the late 60s, and he was a radical political thinker, and then he was a really uh, top-notch heroin addict and and drug user and dealer. Here, I'm going to read the the, uh, Detroit News eulogy written by Melody Batons, and they write, Wayne Wayne Kramer, the co-founder of pioneering Detroit rock band MC5, has died at age 75. Considered one of the greatest guitarists of all time by Rolling Stone magazine, Kramer's death was announced Friday afternoon on his official social media channels. Kramer died at Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, according to Jason Heath, a close friend and executive director of Kramer's nonprofit, Jail Guitar Doors. Heath said the cause of death was pancreatic cancer. Kramer co-founded the MC5 in Lincoln Park, Michigan in the 1960s. The anti-establishment counterculture band went on to be considered one of the most influential American rock and punk groups of that era. MC5's 1969 debut album, Kick Out the Jams, was recorded over two nights at Detroit's Grand Ballroom. It's considered to be a proto-punk staple and was listed more than once in Rolling Stone's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Kramer was very active in recent years, having toured as the MC50 with Soundgarden's Kim Thale and Matt Cameron and Faith No More's bassist Billy Gould and Zen Gorilla singer Marcus Durant. In 2022, Kramer announced the formation of We Are All MC5, a touring reanimation of the trailblazing band. Often called, oh, Kramer also served as an executive producer of G- Jail Guitar Doors, a nonprofit organization that provides 
musical instruments, and mentorship to incarcerated people. Kramer was open about his own jail time. He spent a few years in federal prison in the 1970s on a drug charge. Often called Brother Wayne, Kramer frequently collaborated with others, including his MC5 bandmates, after the group's early 1970s breakup. At a 1992 memorial performance for late vocalist Rob Tyner, Kramer reunited with MC5 guitarist Fred Sonic Smith, bassist Matt Michael Davis, and drummer Dennis Thompson. Smith died in 1994 at 46. Davis died in 2012 at 68. In addition to the MC5 and subsequent versions, Kramer had a fruitful solo career with several releases. In 2018, he released his memoir, The Hard Stuff, Emotional tributes underlining Kramer's influence and tenacity poured in from musicians and music fans immediately following the news of his death. Brother Wayne Kramer was the greatest man I've ever known, wrote Rage Against the Machines' Tom Morello in a lengthy Instagram tribute. He possessed a -a one-of-a-kind mixture of deep wisdom and profound compassion, beautiful empathy, and tenacious conviction. His band, the MC5, basically invented punk rock music and was not was the only act to not chicken out and perform for the rioting protesters at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Wayne had a soft heart but was also Detroit tough as nails. He was a true music aficionado with an eclectic palate, a sense of humor and wit to match, said Detroit musician Paul Randolph, who recently recorded with Kramer for the Alice Cooper album Detroit Styles. Yeah, we had the opportunity to talk to Wayne. Uh, I got to talk to him twice, once on heroin and once in recovery, and I know that the recovery version was better. Here it is. Rest in peace, Wayne Kramer. But here he is from Detroit by way of Los Angeles, from the MC5 and a million other projects, the writer of The Hard Stuff, Wayne Kramer. Welcome to Dopey. Thanks. Happy to be here. It's a miracle. So the year was 1999. It was Bleecker Street. A, a part. A, a, there was a magazine, a Canadian weird magazine called Pop Smear. Does that ring a bell? Yes, I remember Pop Smear. And you were playing with the Street Walk and Cheetahs, and mm-hmm. I was I was on drugs and interviewing you and and the cavalcade of debauchery, and um. I was out of my mind. I, I should look for that for that uh, footage. Do you remember that show at all, or no? Uh, yeah, I do. Re- I, I do remember the gig I played in New York with the Cheetahs. It was a good one, as I remember. Yeah, I had great great footage of you. Great footage of you rocking out. And um, I'd love to see that. Would you send it over? I have it on VHS. What I'm going, I'm 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 like on the precipice of digitizing all of that old shit. And I promise you that when I do, I will send you that footage, 100%. It's, Thank you. It's probably like 10 seconds. But I, I, I'll, I'll, whatever I have, I will totally share with you. And uh, Wayne Kramer is a rock and roll guitar playing icon out of Detroit. And uh, you started the MC5 in like 1964, right? Something like that, yeah. And you were a pioneer. You were like the pre-punk rock and roll loud rock and roll pioneer um how important was drugs to the process in the very beginning well you know this is with the benefit of hindsight and and trying to get a trying to 
have a larger perspective on it. Um, you know, we, we championed drug use, although our drug use was relatively benign. Uh, the, the drugs we embraced were generally marijuana, um, a little bit of psychedelics, uh, a little bit of speed, a little bit of um, downers. But really, we were all about herb in those days. And, and we kind of were snobs about it because we felt like, well, our parents drank. They went to the bar and acted like fools and got into fistfights. And we sat around smoking weed and listening to music and laughing our ass off at the world around us. Um, so, you know, even though we championed drug use, marijuana use, um, it, uh, it, that's, that comes off a little odd knowing what we know today about drug use. Totally, totally. It's, it's what all we referred to as drug use today. Well, that's another thing about I, I just finished Wayne's book. It's amazing. It's called The Hard Stuff, and it is an incredible journey of debauchery, redemption, and the people along the way and the situations you got into. I couldn't even believe it, really. Uh, the first, like, because we always called them dopey stories, you know, when we started making the show, and they were just like war stories. We were going to call the show War Stories, but it turned out there was a, a show called War Stories about actual war, so we just called it dopey. Um, uh, the first story that, that really blew my head was, was the way you got out of the draft uh, via, via meth. You, you want to you wanna tell that one? Well, yeah, you know, it was an um, underground communication channel amongst all young men because everyone was subject to conscription in those days. The government would order you into the army. Uh, you didn't have a choice. And I could not justify serving in an army uh, that was... Um, murdering Vietnamese, um, murdering Americans um, with no justifiable reason. You know, the, the, the communists weren't coming through the Windsor Tunnel from Canada to attack Detroit. Uh, and all I could figure is this must have something to do with this uh, World War II um, Cold War idea of the, the the communist boogeyman coming for us. The communists are hiding under your bed, and and uh, or it had something to do with shell oil. I knew that they had oil refineries in the Gulf of Tonkin, and the American military was out there protecting the oil, and neither of which was a compelling enough reason to join the army and participate in this illegal, uh, undeclared war, um, and, and, you know, certainly an immoral uh, and unethical war. So I, I decided that I would uh, resist them. And the, the best way to resist them that I learned about from my fellows, you know, guys in the neighborhood, other musicians, was to... Um, go in there and be yourself or maybe be a more extreme version of yourself. 
Um, so I decided that I would get prepared by staying up on methadrine for 10 days before the physical. So by the time I walked into the Fort Wayne induction center, I was certifiably psychotic. Um, you know, methadone after a couple of days will do that to you. And after 10 days, I mean, I couldn't see. I was hallucinating so badly. Um, and I just didn't fit into the Army program. I just... You think? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't resist them, but I, but I just... I didn't fit, and uh, they determined that I was uh, unacceptable by current standards, and uh, and declared me one walk. The the other thing that I think is is obviously very important. If anyone is a fan of the MC5, you know the music is all about freedom, but there's also a really important social justice component. Now, did the sound and the style come first, or did the ideology come first? It's impossible to separate them. As one evolved, the other evolved. Because we were, I am, and people of my age now, um, we're all part of a generation that was in an unspoken agreement that the direction the country was going in was wrong and we needed to do something about it that uh, our parents' generation seemed to be uh, blowing it, and blowing it so bad that they could turn the planet into a cinder floating around in space. And, uh, and we just thought we had um, some better ideas. And you did, and you, you guys were, were instrumental in the starting of the White Panther Party, which I think is a very timely kind of conversation considering the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's gone on this year. Uh, how a part of the current social justice movement are you? Well, uh, my, my work um, it mostly involves uh, social justice and criminal justice. Like the, 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 the jail Have guitar you? doors thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. The jail guitar doors. Yeah. Which is amazing. Uh, just over 11 years ago, 12 years ago, um, my wife, Margaret Kramer, Billy Bragg, and I founded Jail Guitar Doors USA uh, as a 501c3 nonprofit that um, works for a more just America, that uh, hyper-incarceration has proven to be a national uh, embarrassment and uh, uh, international scandal. You know, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, so I, you know, having served time in America's prisons, I knew how bad it could get. And I knew that something had to be done and, you know, uh, so I figured out what it was I could do, and what I could do is try to to build an organization that would mitigate the damage. Um, you know, we have destroyed whole communities, we've destroyed families, and millions of lives in the process of uh, of uh, fulfilling politicians' uh, dreams of uh, of uh, 
gaining office by being perceived as tough on crime. Right. So what we do is we use the arts, the power, the transformative power of music to help people change for the better while they're incarcerated. If we don't help people change for the better while they're locked up, they, the prison experience itself will make them worse. Totally. So the, the chance for them to be able to express themselves, be creative, have something positive while they're locked up, they have a better chance of being a little bit rehabilitated or with a better soul, mindset, whatever, worldview when they got out because they had something positive while they were inside. Yeah, and, and through this process, they learn skills that they'll need when they return to the community. You know, for example, how to collaborate with people that you might not necessarily hang out with or that you even like. You know, guys on the prison yard, there's a lot of uh, animosity and a lot of resentment, and it's very tribal. And in our workshops, we tell um, our people that um, you have to leave all that out on the yard, that in our workshops, we're all artists, and we can talk about anybody and anything, but we must treat each other with dignity and respect. And we can all just be human beings, which is what people in prison actually are. Absolutely. Human, just like us. It's amazing, though. Like, And one of the craziest parts about your story, because obviously I, in your book, one of my favorite parts is the jail story. But I don't want to jump ahead because the audience is going to be like, what the fuck? This was a revolutionary guitar player. How did a revolutionary guitar player wind up in prison? But the, the real interesting thing to me is when we put together um, art, uh, social justice, and substance abuse. Like, when those things happen together, like, is it a, it's a weird brew, right? It's, it's hard to, I mean, like, how do you put those things together? Because you know that, I, I mean, musicians obviously love getting high. Um, social justice warrior, everybody loves getting high, but when addiction sets in, it, it, it turns on itself, right? It becomes difficult to be really, really uh, pronounced as a social justice advocate if you're getting too high, right? Well, you can't do much of anything if you're getting too hot. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. You can't be a husband. You can't be a father. You can't be a partner or a bandmate. You know, if you're getting if you're getting high, then that's what you do. <laughs> and talk about like the kind of like the the middle and the ending of the MC5, where addiction kind of. Uh, you know, it kind of undid every, cause you put everything together, you put it in place. It was your vision and it was pretty much your addiction that, that took it out. Well, no, I, I had some help with that. That's true. <laughs> um, well, the MC five, you know, all rock bands or almost all rock bands have a, a life cycle, like everything in nature it's it's uh, conceived and it's birthed and it's nurtured and it grows and it flourishes and flowers and bears fruit and then it ages and it withers and it dies. 
That's the same with rock bands. They all go through that life cycle. Um, but most rock bands, you know, their, their challenges are uh, internal, you know, relationships that, uh, that sour over time. Um, and, uh, uh, and they're worried about um, business, you know, like, is the band viable? Can we make a living being in this band? Um, the MC5 had all those pressures, plus we had the pressure uh, of our political stance, which generated an enormous amount of attention from the FBI and the local police. Um, so we, we were, you know, fighting with, with both hands tied behind our back, um, you know, tied up in court, um, harassed by... Uh, the Detroit Police Department and the Michigan State Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so when when your life all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize you're surrounded by chaos and pressure and negativity, um, getting high becomes the solution. And getting high wasn't my problem. It was my solution because all those problems went away when I got loaded. I got a break. I could I could relax. I could I could chill out because I'm high. And uh, unfortunately, um, that solution brings a whole nother set of problems with it. Um, and in the case of the MC5, like many other rock bands, when uh, alcoholism and active, uh, in our case, uh, opiate abuse entered the picture, then everything else uh, is left uh, priority. It drops down on the, on the list of things that matter. And pretty soon all you're doing is getting through the gig so you can get the money to go cop and get loaded. Totally. And, and it, you know, it's, it, this is a well-trod trail you know this is nothing new for anybody that's gone down this road let me ask you this it's like a band like the stooges didn't have to carry the weight of being political they could just be out there rock and roll people do you think the political weight kind of like impeded the success at all because you couldn't just be this band you know this band of junkies this band of rockers you had the political component do you think it it hurt at all I don't think so, because it, you can't, like I said before, you can't separate it. You know, that's who we were. That was the, we took a militant stance. We embraced um, our uh, colleagues and our partners around the country and around the world that were all fighting to change things. Uh, you know, we, we didn't, that wasn't an add-on later. I understand. I get it. That was a core belief. You know, when I stood up on the stage and put my hand up in the air in the peace sign or the power to the people fist, and, and the kids threw that back at me, we were making a powerful connection because we were speak, we were addressing their concerns directly. Right. I, I never tried to convince someone that I was, uh, you know, a blues master and I studied Elmore James and now I'm going to play the blues for you. You know, I had other things I was concerned with. 
No, I get it. I get it. And 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 once it's all done, you guys were a, a, an inspiration to people who who might not have ever heard about any kind of uh, progressive message. So I mean, it's all it's all amazing work you got to do. When was the first time uh, you tried an opiate? Um, I think we were just starting to write our third album, so it must have been about nineteen seventy. 71, maybe. I had been reading about dope fiend jazz musicians. And, you know, I, I referred to William Burroughs as Uncle Bill. And, you know, I'd read Junkie and uh, and all those. Uh, uh, what was my man's name? Uh, guy that wrote Pimp. I can't think of it. Uh, I used to get his books at the parole office. <laughs> Who was it? Um, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, um, you know, I was really intrigued with it, and one of the other guys in the MC5 was using, and he, he was a little older than me, and he'd been around the block a couple more times than I had, and he knew about heroin, and so one day I said, hey, uh, next time you go, get me a bag, you know, and, and he did, and I took it home and snorted it up and turn the lights down low and listen to John Lee Hooker. Cause I thought that's what you're supposed to do when you do heroin. <laughs> well, that, that works, right? It's iceberg slim that wrote pimp. Iceberg slim. That's him. Iceberg that's slim. Um, and that's that junkie dream, right? Donald Goins. Donald Goins. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that junkie dream, right? You have and, and one and you're a guitar player, and I don't think it, you're off the mark thinking that you should listen to John Lee Hooker the first time you snore dope. I think that I think that makes sense. You know, I think that's not a bad choice for the first time you snore dope. Um, how long did it take before it became something that you were like, oh well, maybe I like this too much, kind of thing? Well, I, you know, I went along like you know, get high on Friday night because it's the weekend and. Then, you know, get high on Friday and Saturday. Then get high on Tuesday or get high on Wednesday. It's the first Friday. And then I'm awake. Let's get high. And and uh, and I knew pretty quickly that, um, that this was completely out of control. I mean, once you first um, start to go through withdrawal sickness, you realize you've got yourself into a, a mess. And there's, you know, in the beginning, when you don't know what getting sick is, it scares you to death because you don't know how far this is going to go. You know, okay, your legs are cramping and you're puking and you have diarrhea and you're all sweaty and, you you know, you're just as miserable. You can't sleep and you can't sit still. And you don't know, is that going to get worse? So you're pretty motivated to go get another bag and, or, you know, figure out something you can steal or sell. And, of course, I went through everything, all my clothes, my guitars, my amps, my cars. I sold everything. Everything went in a little hole in Wayne's arm. What was the first time you injected it? You know, it wasn't for a few years because I had the kind of uh, adolescent fear of hypodermics. So I snort, my first habit was about two years long, and I just snorted. I was a tutor. We said that benign term, you know. Totally. Kind of cute, you know. But uh, 
it, I'll tell you what, what turned me out was um, another musician friend brought over a bag of cocaine and said, try this. And I said, yeah, well, give me a straw. And he said, no, no, do this. And he gave me a syringe. So I, I banged a cocaine and realized, wow, this is great, you know. And from then on, there that was the delivery system for whatever I was getting high on. Right. It all changed once you shot the first coke you shot. Yeah. I, I shot a little bit of coke. The guy who died, my friend who died, lived to shoot coke. That was like his favorite thing. Um, how instrumental do you think the opiate, the opiates were with the demise of the band? I, I'd get, I'd rate it pretty high as, as one of the elements. I mean, because it undermines anything good that you have going on. So one of the guys in the band was good at, was better at math. So he was supposed to take care of the money and yet he was embezzling, you know, to pay for his drugs and, and, you know, you can't do anything because you have to go cop first. Like, you can't go to rehearsal because you got to go cop. And I can't sit down and try to write a new song because I got to go cop because I can't do anything unless, I'm, unless I get straight. And, uh, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, uh, you know, there were, there were other fellows in the band that, that were using to the degree I was and more. And of course, you know, when you're high, nothing comes in. No new information comes into your brain. So for an artist to have nothing new coming in, then no new art can come out. Right. Absolutely. I think that's really an interesting point because you can't do anything when there's nothing coming in. It's like it's just like any other engine. You need input to create action or motion or product yeah. or anything i get that and I, I have to say when i'm reading the book and the mc5 ended in in the first chunk i was like what the hell is gonna happen now and that's when all hell breaks loose i was like holy shit i couldn't believe because like when i interviewed you in 1999 and i'm on heroin and maybe you're clean like the irony is thick in my mind like that you were this person i didn't know i was this person and i didn't know how bad it was going to get for me because i didn't get clean until you know five years ago i was i was probably 23 or 25 when we met you know i was 25 when we met in 1999 now i'm 46 and I have almost, I have five and a half years clean now. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is what happened with you is where, that's where it gets really crazy. Uh, that's when like social justice, rock and roll, everything takes a back seat uh, to your drug habit. Um, and do you remember it happening gradually or was it just bang? No, it's gradual. I mean, you know, you, you heard the expression, it's a long walk into the woods long walk back out of the woods and you know it's it's repeating certain negative behaviors a little here a little there just a little more here a little more there and you know one day you wake up and you're surrounded by scumbags and low riders and hustlers and liars and thieves and cutthroats and backstabbers and murderers 
And, you know, you say, what happened to my life? You know, <laughs> I used to be surrounded by people that loved me and all I had to do is write some songs and play the guitar and, and dance around on stage. And here I am, you know, in a basement, some, you know, on the east side of Detroit. And, you know, these guys all got guns and they're talking about robbing people and shooting them. And, you know, it's just... So basically, once you're getting high, you put the guitar down and everything else kind of changes while you're figuring out how to score, basically. And then you realize you haven't picked it up in a while. Well, I never put it down, but, you know, it was always there, and I was always trying to do something, but my efforts were always undermined by, you know, my priorities. I had another job that was more important, and that was to to use continue to abuse opiates. Absolutely. And, and alcohol. Right. And that's when the, the crime started kicking in, right? That's when that's when yeah. that's when you're in uh in uh in Michigan and, and the burglaries begin, right? Which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I obviously I'm not judging you in a, for a second. I've done terrible things and lots of the audience have done terrible things. Um, do you remember that period well? Were you were you too high to recall it? Like, what was the first job and how did it happen? I remember it well because, you know, I was a childhood thief. Um, I, I started stealing when I was a little boy, probably seven, eight years old, maybe nine. I, I just, I found, you know, I had a lot of time on my mother worked. I was being raised by a single working mom. So she's at work all day and I run the streets. Then I find that I can steal little items from neighborhood merchants, you know, the uh, Kresge's department store. And I could go steal toys and candy and I'd steal money from my mother. And so I had this. Um, magical thinking already in me that uh, somehow I could just get away with it and and there would be no consequences to my stealing. So when I was an adult and, and with, a, with a habit to support, I met a guy. I knew that he was a, a thief. Uh, everyone knew that that's what he did on the side. He was a musician. And uh, one day he saw me um, struggling and he said, hey, man, if you want to make some money, you know, you could come to work with me. And I knew exactly what he meant and, and I agreed to do it. And uh, so we started breaking into people's houses and stealing their stuff. It's really uh, a, a uh, heinous uh, activity and really, really just aberrant and... and uh, and really, you know, damaging. It's foul. I mean, if you've ever been robbed, the feeling, it just cuts right to your heart, you know, that that someone came in your home and, and they, they went through your stuff and they took things that belonged to you that didn't belong to them. I mean, it's really, it's you know, that's what I should have gone to prison for. Not for dealing cocaine. Right, right. <laughs> the co my customers for the cocaine all enjoyed the cocaine, uh, but I should have gone to prison for the for the home invasions. Terrifying, and nobody was ever home when you went in, though. No, thank God. Oh my God! And then 
Yeah, so you start dealing coke, and then you get busted in a classic, like, Goodfellas-esque serious bust. And, yeah. um, and I mean, like, for my money, like, for whatever reason, when you went to prison and, and they transferred you to that junkie Hall of Fame facility in Lexington, Kentucky, I had read about that facility, I think, in, in Burroughs' books and in other books. Like, that's a famous place for the cure, they called it, right? Like junkies yeah. would go there for the cure in the in the beginning of the twentieth century, um, but I couldn't believe it when uh, when Red Rodney shows up in the book. Like that just like blew me away. You know, like what an amazing turn of events. Talk about like what was it like in Lexington first of all, and did they try to treat your drug addiction? Because I I think I remember reading that you were using in there anyways. So it must not be that effective of a place for the cure. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I did get I did get high a few times in there. Listen, you got a, a, a whole little city full of drug addicts. They're going to find a way to get drugs. I mean, I saw a guy, I knew a guy in my housing unit that dealt in there, and I saw him count out. We used to be able to have um, quarters because we had uh, soda machines and fruit machines. And you could have $4 and quarters a week to buy stuff from the machines. This guy counted out $700 and quarters on his bunk every day. Oh, my God. And he would, he would, tear, he would uh, uh, get it changed through um, the mafia guys. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, if through the visiting room, he would send the money out and get his next shipment of dope in. Every day. <laughs> so did you do a bunch of heroin in, in prison too? Because I, I remember you smoked a bunch of weed in prison. Did you do? Yeah, a- we, we smoke weed every day. But, you know, I probably got high four or five times in the almost three years I was there. So you didn't have to maintain a habit when you were in, in that prison? Well, I couldn't. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have the resources for that. I, I knew guys in there that did have habits. In the penitentiary, they got a fucking habit. <laughs> I thought it was incredible. <laughs> and how did they keep it up? Just with whatever they had to do, right? Well, they a couple of them, they were on um, work release or study release, so they could go out during the day, and they had, like, their girlfriends and, you know, their, their crew out there to keep them alive. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be wrong. In my my memory, which is never great, Red Rodney replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker band. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. Yes. And uh, I love all that shit. I love all that history, which is probably one of the reasons I was a heroin addict for so long. Um, and and not, I'm not like a musician like you're a musician, but I would love to play. I found that when I would play, I would I would play to catch a nod. Like a lot of the time, I would play when I would use, and if I didn't have enough, if I played more, I would find myself nodding just from practicing. Did you ever experience that? Sure. Okay. Um, Now, Red Rodney shows up, legendary jazz trumpet player, legendary junkie. What was that? Describe the experience a little bit. Well, in you know, I was in my mid twenties then, you know, prison is a, is a young man's game. And, uh, red was in his late fifties then. And he had been, he had 
come back to Lexington where he had served time in the 40s and in the 50s. And uh, he, he, used to, he used to walk around that place like he was the mayor. <clears throat> he said, I, Wayne, I like doing business with established institutions. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> but he was, he was kind of my idol. You know, I mean, he was a dope fiend jazz musician, just the kind of guy that I always wanted to grow up and be. And here we were doing time, you know, him, him back for his third bit and me on my first bit. And I got to see that, you know, if I don't change, I'll be him and I'll be coming back to these penitentiaries again and again. And, and, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't, they, it was a, it was a rehabilitation facility. They encouraged everybody to program. They made a lot of programs available, but the state of the art of recovery was nowhere near where it is today. And right. it was, it was woefully inadequate. We didn't even have 12 steps. <clears throat> at Lexington, we had you know group therapy and and uh, rational behavior training and positive mental attitude and right. and you know a bunch of kind of lightweight um, talking cure ideas. Uh, I think the most effective mode modality that we had was transactional analysis. TA, I know never... I'm okay. You're okay. How does that work? I don't even know how that works. Well, it, it has to do with ego states and that each of us carry around a, an adult, a parent, and a child inside us. And if, my, if I come out of my kid to your parent, it's not going to work. Or right. if I come out of my parent to your kid, it isn't going to work. It only works if we come out adult to adult. I get it. That makes sense. It sounds to me also like your experience with Red in prison, like one of my favorite parts is where he tests you to see if you can play and like, yeah. and then you could play changes fast enough for him to be like, okay, we can be friends. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but it reminds yeah, me. That's, that's, that's exactly what happened. He put the jazz fake book in front of me and said, can you read these chords? And I said, I think so. And he said, okay, we're going to play this one. One, two. One, two, three, and he started playing the melody on the trumpet, and I struggled with the changes. Because, you know, in bebop, in, in standards, sometimes you get four chords per bar. It's fast. It's fast yeah. and furious. I'm impressed that you kept up. And he's like, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm in jail. This guy's better than nothing. He's, 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 he was psyched <laughs> that you could keep up. And I, I, yeah. and I think that's a very beautiful thing in itself. But it also reminds me of, like, like the roots of the jail, uh, jail guitar doors thing that you guys are using music to, to do the time. You know what I mean? You were, you were playing gigs, you, you were practicing and, and you you got to work on your craft and, and it probably made you a much better guitar player. I went into prison in a fairly adventurous, uh, you know, rock player. And I think I came out a competent musician I, I could improvise through changes. Um, I, I knew some of the the repertoire, you know, the 
great American songbook. I knew some of the songs that we played. And, uh, you know, Red taught me a, a number of songs. And uh, so I felt like, you know, I actually understand a little bit about uh, music theory at this point. And, and uh, my reading improved radically. So, yeah, I mean, listen, studying with uh, a musician of the caliber of, of Red Rodney was the chance of a lifetime. I mean, you know, he brought, when, I, when he played, I didn't hear melodies and chords. I smelled fried chicken. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 I heard Louis Armstrong and I heard 42nd Street and, you know, just there was his playing was so vivid and, and, and um, compelling that, uh, you know, I had to like often I had to not listen to him because I'd get too distracted. Right. It's amazing because you were so lucky because in a way you had this ridiculous freedom under the most lockdown situation you could have. Like it's like you yeah. it's like you couldn't make that kind of thing up. You got incredibly lucky. I mean, yeah. considering considering you're in jail because you were dealing coke and you're a heroin addict and everything is fucked. You're playing with one of the greatest and you're keeping up. And it's I hear you when you hear when you smell fried chicken from hearing music. It's that's soulful. You know, that's where the soul music mm-hmm. comes in and the real experience. It's I like hearing that. That that's that's nice. Um, and then when you get out, it gets to the next level of crazy junky musician shit. Because I'll fast forward a little. You wind you land in New York City, and uh, and you wind up hooking up with junkie superstar fucking Johnny Thunders, which I never knew about that. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, not another one of my not so great career moves. <laughs> He, he was a MC5 fan, and uh, he told me later that he was in the front row at every gig the MC5 played in New York, and, and uh, uh, apparently I, I betted one of his girlfriends one night. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about him, but um, uh, so, you know, I first got home, he came to Detroit, and through a mutual friend, uh, invited me down to sit in. And uh, I went down and played with them. And I thought they were pretty sloppy. And, you know, they were kind of all over the map. And, and the bickering on stage between him and Walter was really distracting. But, you know, I saw it as like, yeah, give me a chance to play. I don't want people to forget me. You know, I've been away for a few years here. And so I got up and we jammed, and then he asked me to to if I wanted to hang out, and I tried to avoid it because I saw that you know the world around him was all about drugs, and I was I just come out of prison. I was trying to you know all I had was willpower, and that lasted about three days, and then uh, I went up and hung out with him and his drug dealer manager and. I was off to the races. And like, um, obviously it's almost the opposite of the, the fried chicken, red Rodney experience. You weren't smelling fried chicken when, when Johnny Thunders was playing, you're probably smelling dope cooking in a spoon when Johnny Thunders was playing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was the same thing. It, like I described in the, the early days of the MC five, you can't do anything because you got to go cop first. 
And it was the same with Thunders. And finally, I just said, hey, if you're going, get me too, you know? Right. And, and, and you're just off and running. He, it's so weird. Like, for me, like, I'm not the biggest New York Dolls fan. Uh, I love, uh, I like the Johnny Thunders solo stuff. Like, the quiet stuff. Like, I think that stuff is pretty cool. Um, why do you suppose he is this larger-than-life character in the world at this point? Is it because, like, what do you attribute that to? Well, it, it's, a, it's a romantic um, image. You know, he, he believed his own mythology. You know, these are, these are myths that we create around, uh, you know, careers and, and, and artists. And, and he created this myth of the junkie guitar player, and he, he could not separate himself from the myth. I, at one point, I, I got myself into a methadone program, and I got him into a methadone program. And he lasted two days. He liked being out in the street ripping and running. And, and, you know, I hated it. I was so sick of it. And methadone made perfect sense to me. But, uh, you know, there, it, for, at arm's length, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's um, a kind of tragic, romantic uh, image that he represented and, and people are drawn to, uh, you know, self-destructive artists and it, and it, and it's kind of perverse, really. It's aberrated. It's, there's something, um, out of sync with it, but uh, clearly it appeals to, to some people. Right. Most people, it doesn't appeal to most people and most people are just not interested in it and could care less and, you know, even in the rock world, I I don't think there's a great many. If you if you did a cross section of of contemporary musicians, I don't know there'd be that many of them that would know who he is or what he did. Right, right. But it's funny because Keith Richards was his archetype, right? That was right. his his dream, and I'm sure. And, and when you read about Keith. For some reason, Keith never mainlined. He always would muscle all the dope. And I'm sure Johnny Thunders would, would mainline the dope, right? He wasn't muscling the dope like Keith. And Keith, like, w w did he mainline it or did he muscle it when he would shoot it? Johnny Thunders. Well, he, he had no veins left. Right. So, so it was a, just, a, just a horrific, uh, you know, gross uh, scene to watch him digging around in his arms and in his feet and in his groin. And, you know, he was so sick. He, he had boils all over him and, you know, he was in terrible health when I met him and it only got worse as time went on. We, we were only together for eight or 10 months, I think. And, and, uh, and uh, it just, you know, I couldn't bear it anymore. I had to, I had to step away, but, uh, yeah, he, you know, he had no veins. I mean, he never IM'd his, his dope. And the thing about Keith, you know, Keith has the best doctors in the world. He gets pharmaceutical drugs. And he, you know, I don't think Keith does that much of it. You know, even in his peak, I think he was pretty judicious about the amounts that he would go. I mean, if you read his book, apparently he would stay up on days on cocaine, reorganizing his 
cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And it's you know he could go to Switzerland and get his drug his his blood changed. <laughs> which he did. And you know Johnny Thunder's not getting anything changed. Poor Johnny mm. Thunder's. Oh man, and that's and that's interesting too. Just like the difference between the reality and the romance. The reality yeah. is boils and shooting in your groin and missing and your feet and misery and the romance is some some recording you hear one time. You know what I mean? And he turned up dead in New Orleans, you know, and it was a very sad, you know, horrible end to him. Now, and 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 around that time when you started doing methadone, it seemed to me from reading the book that that's where there was some sort of idea that you could maybe get out of it. Like you started talking to people, like people started explaining, like professionals would explain what they had been through. And you were like, this is interesting. Like, was that the beginning of thinking maybe there could be an out? Yeah. I, I, yeah. During, during the eighties, you know, I'd already gone through, you know, heroin for a few years leading up to prison and then uh, coming out of prison and moving to New York where, Heroin was um, available and high quality and cheap, and and uh, I just it's such a degrading life that you that you, that I was forced to endure, you know, that I put myself in this situation, and I at a certain point I just I I said there's got to be an, a way out of this, there's got to be a, a way to to uh, live where this isn't necessary. And, but I, all I had was, you know, willpower and, and yeah, you know, gotten to the methadone program, which, which I am still to this day in favor of. I, I support methadone maintenance. You know, there are, there are some among us who um, aren't going to get sober. And I would rather have them go to the clinic once a week and get their takeaways and have a life than um, spend it in the gutter, you know, shooting dope, ripping and running, uh, and die a horrible junkie death, you know, before your time. I mean, you you could say a junkie death is a natural death, but I, I mean there's another natural death that's possible. Um, yeah, so, and it was still um, decades before I, I got sober, you know, I... I would I I replaced my methadone um, habit with the Wayne Kramer vodka and prescription medicine habit. Well, I treatment program. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I was on methadone for years and years, and I I never used it responsibly. I always took as many pills as I could when I got my dose. And if I had money, I would shoot dope before I'd get the methadone. And I would do, and, and like, I agree with you. I support whatever anybody can do to make their life as positive and, and happy as possible. And if it's method, if, if it's methadone in the proper way, or if it's methadone to lessen, you know, the, the misery, I, I support it. When you were on methadone, did you do it by the book or were you using other stuff at the same time? No, I was uh, I was a model patient. Nice. You know, after a few after a few months, they you know I made all my appointments. You know, I loved going to the clinic. It reminded me of prison. Where did you go? Where was the clinic you went to? It was at Beth Israel in Manhattan. Which one on Twentieth Street and Third Avenue? Yep. 
that shabby one on the corner. I went there for a bit. I was a mess in that spot. I was, that place is still looks exactly the same. It looks like 1978 on that corner still. It's yeah, fucking- yeah, yeah. I, I, and I met a, a great uh, counselor there who, who re- really helped me. I mean, it was the first time I, you know, I was able to talk to someone that, you know, knew what I knew, that had done what I had done. You know, they'd put needles in their arms. They had, you know, hurt people and been hurt. And, and, uh, uh, and so it was helpful to, to meet an older man and to talk to him about, you know, prison and, and crime and dope and, and all the myriad 10,000 problems that we all endure. Yes, and you could see that, and it was the, it was the spark. I mean, it would t- like you said, it took you decades to get from there to sober, um, yeah. but it was the spark. And one of the other really interesting things I thought was that at that point in your life, you're a world class guitar player. Obviously, you're a world class addict, but it's at that point that all these sort of normal skills come into you. Like you learn how to how to build things and build houses, and you travel the country lived in florida and did roofs i mean the roofing in brooklyn sounded pretty tough but uh but house building was pretty amazing and like how how did that impact your recovery in general when you saw different aspects to your own skill set well i think it was all a you know a, a building process i mean the some of the things i had to do were um existential crises crises you know, like, what am I doing here? You know, I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I can play. I can write songs. I can entertain people. Why? What am I doing standing in hot tar with a mop on the roof of a building in Brooklyn in the middle of the winter? You know, I'm, I'm burning up and I'm freezing at the same time. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I kind of stumbled along and, and, you know, found out things that I, I, I wouldn't do anymore. Like I will never do roofing again, but I found out that I could build things with my hands that I was good with, you know, a plan and with tools. And, uh, and I found that I could support myself outside of music because, you know, music is a tough, road a hoe. I mean, if you might be in a hit band and you got gigs and money's flowing, but that's going to go away. And then, you know, then you got to find another gig and it's, it's tough. And so to start being a cabinet maker where I just show up at the wood shop every day and build nice things for wealthy people. No, I get it. And it helped me musically because now I don't have to go suck up to some club owner for a $500 gig. And I can say, look, yeah, if you want to hire me, it's $1,000. Or I'm not interested. I don't need it. I don't need the money. I have a job. And I, th- I found it liberating. Also, I think it's awesome that you were capable of doing that. Like, I, I don't think I could build a house or a cabinet and uh, I like, and I like just hearing the craftsmanship come out of you because I could hear the pride, and it kind of also reminded you of who you were—the pride in your music at the same time. And it's like when you're at your worst, you forget who you are, you forget yeah. what you're capable of, 
And like, it was inspiring to me to read that stuff. Um, and, and when, like, when you turn the corner, I mean, you had made it to California and, um, how did it happen? Because I know you got involved in recovery while you were still using, which I find to be very interesting. Well, yeah, I, um, I was in a marriage that was breaking up and, um, uh, I, I went to a, a drummer I hired was sober and he told me about a meeting called artists living in recovery. And so he said, you should go see it. It's kind of interesting. So I, it was in my neighborhood, and I'd walk over to the meeting on Sunday mornings. And I was pretty blown away by what I experienced because um, it was all people in the arts dealing with their recovery through the 12-step recovery program. And uh, I met a musician. That I, actually, I, I knew some people there, and I asked one of them if he knew a, uh, a couple's counselor, and he recommended a woman. And I, we, me and my wife at the time went to meet with her, and uh, she talked to me for a while, and she asked me if, uh, you know, how I was doing with drugs, and I told her that I had it all together, and I was, you know, I was cool. And she said, oh, really? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I use if I want to use. I don't use if I don't want to use. So she recommended I meet a friend of hers. And uh, I thought, great, you know, here's, here's another jailbird hustler. He's found, a, he's found a, a scam out here to avoid going back to prison. This guy called me, and, and uh, he wouldn't argue with me which threw me for a loop. And he invited me to a meeting. And I went to the meeting, and I knew guys at the meeting, you know, other musicians, like some guys were had started off with me back in Detroit who had come to California and found fame and fortune, and they were members of this meeting. It was an all-men stag. And... Uh, so I started attending the meeting, and I, and I had been lying to everybody that I was sober because I, I had moved enough times to know that you only get to be the new guy for a little while. And, and so don't blow it this time, Wayne. Don't let anyone see you high in a club. Don't let anyone see you drunk. You know, so I'm, I'm living this covert life, and I go to the meeting, and I tell everyone that I... I just pulled a number out of my ass. Yeah. Oh, I've been sober uh, uh, six years. Yeah, six years. Sounded like a nice number. Sure. And I was just bullshit and bullshit. Finally, one day, you know, I, I really developed some appreciation for the men in the meeting. And, uh, and I started to feel disingenuous. Right. You know, that I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm taking up a chair, and I'm bullshitting to everybody. And so I, I came clean and told them that I was going to be the only living person to retire from 12 steps. And, uh, and they responded appropriately. You know, they said, okay, that's, that's cool, Wayne. You know, if you want to come back, come back anytime. And you know, some guys were bent out of shape and other guys could care less what I what my problem was. They had their own shit to talk about. Not to mention and, that that's in the book. They say go out and experiment and see how it goes, right? That's in yeah. the book. 
And that's what I did. And of course, it went very badly. <laughs> right. So I came back to the meeting. I called my friend and I said, listen, uh, Bob, I'm, uh, I'm a sick man. I, I, I can admit I'm a sick man. I need help. Uh, can you help me? And he said, Wayne, we don't shoot the wounded. And he just cracked my heart open with that response. So I, I went under his wing and uh, he became my sponsor. And uh, he taught me about um, the principles to live by in 12 steps. And um, it changed my life. That's Bob Timmons, right? Or should I not say yeah. his name? Should I delete his name? That's his name, yeah. Am I allowed to say it, or is it shouldn't be said? It should be said. He's uh, dearly departed, uh, but he was a great man. I mean, I, you know, I started to see that he was a guy, and I, I knew lots of guys like Bob Timmons that were bad guys, that were violent guys, that would hurt you and not think about it. Um, and, you know, I knew them in prison. I knew them back in Detroit. And here he was. And from all I could tell, he was a little old man who just helped guys. That's all he did is help people. No, he was legendary. He was a legendary figure uh, around 12 Steps and, and around drug addicts. And I don't even remember where I heard of him. I just know that I've heard of his, his good deeds. Let me ask you this, because the MC5 was like basically you know if you trace back the history of music it was a, a huge point of, of diversion in american rock and roll kind of like the jump off point to punk music you know through rock and roll the jump off point to metal through rock and roll through big sounds and riffs and and bombastic chaotic but very blues-based rock and roll. When you show up at these meetings in L.A. with these, you know, rock and roll guys, these punks and, you know, metal guys and, and just rock guys who know the history, were they, like, blown away? Because, like, you are the, you know, kind of like the uh, originator. You know, they know, right? Was it, was it a thing? It wasn't a thing because, you know, in the rooms... We're, we're all the same. You know, we're all uh, addicts and alcoholics, and we're all there because something's wrong, and we need to find out what it is and what can be done about it. That's all that matters in, in a 12-step meeting. You know, what you do for your job, it's not so important. You know, how are you coping with life? That's pretty important. And how's it going? How are you coping with life? Oh, you know, I uh, I don't have any of that big ticket drama uh, that uh, active addicts and alcoholics share. You know, I, I don't fight. I don't box with people in bars and and I don't have people that are looking for me and I'm not looking for anybody. And, you know, my life is, is uh, you know, pretty tame and and. Uh, and and pretty positive. I um, I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful little boy, and I have good work that I do. But you know, my life isn't perfect, and and I don't do recovery perfectly. 
I'm a human being. I'm flawed. Um, you know, I'm imperfect. And I will always be imperfect. Um, you know, I, I still struggle with, uh, with depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, I, I, I use all the tools that, I, that are available to me. Um, and, I, you know, at this point in my, my life, I, I have nothing to complain about. How do you I'm deal? Still breathing in and out. Say it again. I'm still breathing in and out. Absolutely, and and I cannot uh, thank you enough for taking so much time with us. Uh, I think your book is incredible. Your music is incredible. Check out Wayne Kramer and the MC5 all over the place. And the book is called The Hard Stuff. How do you deal with the anxiety and the depression? Well, I I tried uh, antidepressants for a long time and ultimately they never they, they didn't work um i i have a great therapist that i've been with for 15 years and so we talk about it i'm uh i'm talking to a uh, another doctor a researcher now about um psychedelic therapies you know, they've come a long way with uh, psilocybin. And um, I think that might, it might allow me just a, a slight reset. You know, I'm, I'm almost good. <laughs> I just, every now and then it gets a hold of me and I, and I just, uh, you know, I, I, I get down. And so, you know, I do, I try to use the tools that are available, the talk therapy and, um, uh, you know, if I can try this uh, clinical, the clinical use of uh, psilocybin, I'm willing to try that. You know, I try to remember that uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't attack me every day all the time. It's occasional. Sure. And in those occasional moments, I can usually find something to do to treat it in the day I'm in, in the moment I'm in. But sometimes I just got to suffer. Right, right. We all we all suffer. But did you ever read the letters between uh, Bill Wilson and Timothy Leary where, Tim, where Bill Wilson's like, I think AAs would really benefit from LSD? Did you ever read those letters? I have not read the letters, but I'm well aware of his interest in it and his experiments with it after he um, retired from AA. And I think he, you know, he might have been on to something. I mean, he had his spiritual breakthrough, his blinding white light spiritual moment on Belladonna, which is a psychedelic. Right, right. That's interesting. I, I thought the story that you told... Because when you're on a flight and the stewardess is like, like annoyed that you're so fucked up, and you're like, "Oh, that can't be me. That's got to be this guy <laughs> that's making you crazy." And then you kind—I felt like your your end of your run, I found very similar to the end of my run, where I was just like, "I cannot believe this is me at this point," you know. And like, it's not—it's not a belladonna fucking microdose psilocybin ayahuasca thing. But it's no. but it's something, you know what I'm saying? It's something. It, it's it's uh, it's that moment of change and clarity. Do you ever consider this ayahuasca business, or no way? 
Nah, I, you know, I got I got to stick with the clinical application. You know, I, I have friends that uh, that have gone to South America and and taken ayahuasca and and they swear by it, but I'm not gonna. I you know I have to. Uh, I got to do things by the book, really. Totally. <laughs> I'm going to stay married. <laughs> wow, that sounds smart. That sounds very smart. And now, as as like a like a a lead of the '60s psychedelic revolution, how much of it is some like old school feeling of longing, like the fact that it can be a clinical trial of a microdose of psilocybin? How much does it scratch that old itch of like being the psychedelic warrior? I don't know. I don't. Uh, ask me after I if if I get it, uh, I'll 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 fill you in later. Perfect, Wayne. Thank you so much for your time. You were incredibly generous. Uh, I th- think you're a legend of rock and roll and sobriety. So thank you. You're so welcome. I, I'm happy to be able to talk about a lot of this stuff um, at the depth that we've gone because you know often in. Uh, rock and roll interviews it's it's you know we don't go this deep <laughs> well good deal good deal let's so let's do a follow-up after the clinical trials of psilocybin okay okay fair enough i'm dying to hear what happens and 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 thank you so much wayne i really really appreciate it you're very welcome right on man take care <laughs> We never got to do the psilocybin follow-up. It's hard to get these guys to come back, but I remember when I had this talk with him how meaningful it was to me. I'm very sad to have learned that he died. And he was a good dude, and he helped a lot of people. The original episode was 299. So there's some really classic, weird, dopey shit in the front of that. So I just want to say thank you guys for listening. Rest in peace, Wayne Kramer. You were an American original, and we love and appreciate you. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.